Good morning. How are you guys today? Are you are you alive? I mean, that's a beautiful thing, right? Yes. As uh, Dave always says, it's good to be seen. I say, it's good to see you, Dave. I say, good to be seen. <clears throat> it is good to be seen. That means I'm alive, right? That's yeah, a good thing. So I-, I wanted to ask you a really important question before we get started. How many of you are familiar with the book and or movie called The Hunger Games? Show of hands. Come on, raise them real high. Come on, I need to know who I'm talking to here. Okay, so that's most of you, but not all of you. So let me give you just a little brief summary. And, and don't pick this apart now. Tell me, oh, that's not what the book says, and blah, blah, blah. Okay? <laughs> I'm just trying to make a point here. Essentially, what we're looking at here is like this sort of a post-apocalyptic version of North America, right? Where it's divided into 12 districts, and there's this capital region that lives in like lavish luxury and like imposes its will on all the other districts um, as a way of showing kind of their dominance and those kinds of things. And, and the storyline culminates in this event called The Hunger Games, right? Which is described as this. This is not me. This is somebody else saying it, but it helps put it in context. Here's this event. Punishment for a past failed rebellion against the capital, which resulted in the obliteration of District 13. So there was once a District 13. Now there's not. Um, one boy and one girl between the ages of 12 and 18 from each of the 12 remaining districts are selected by an annual lottery to participate in the Hunger Games, a contest which the tributes must fight to the death in an outdoor arena until only one remains. That's pretty intense. If you've not watched it or or read it, it's like, wow, that's crazy. It's a wildly popular book series and movies. Um, But what the first movie starts out as... One of the districts, 12, is going through what they call the reaping ceremony. That's when the district or the uh, capital people come in and they do essentially a lottery and choose who is going to be the representative, one boy, one girl, for that district. And so here we are in District 12. All of the children in that category are sitting there and they call a name. What name do they call? They call the guy's name first. Right? Isn't it the guy? Yeah. It doesn't matter. The guy is unimportant. Peter Lamarck. Peter Lamarck. Then they go to the ladies, and so they call the first name of the young girl. Whose name is it? Primrose Everdeen. Primrose Everdeen. And how old is Primrose? She's 12 years old, so she's like at the very bottom of that age limit. It's like you see the camera kind of zoom in on her, and she's like, she's not sure what to do. Like she heard her name, and she's like panicking, and you see like this fear in her eyes because it's basically a death sentence, right? So she's kind of starting to move in that direction, and then it pans over to her sister, who is who? Katniss Everdeen. Katniss Everdeen. How old is Katniss? She's 16, so just a few years older, but you see in her her eyes all of the the, the emotions and feelings and considerations about what this means, and you can kind of see the panic in her eyes, and then there's like this settled moment, like, I know what to do, and she kind of raises her hand, and she says what? I volunteer as tribute. Famous line for that movie, if you know anything about the Hunger Games series. I volunteer as tribute. Essentially saying, I will take the place of my sister, and I accept what is essentially my own death sentence. It's it's crazy traumatic and, and intense 
moment that happens there. And that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the movie. But my point being, this is an incredible, incredible demonstration of love. It's love that motivates her to want to take her sister's place, my life for yours kind of thing, selfless, others-focused. Like, if we're talking about a clear demonstration of love, like, this is a great example of that. And that's a big part of what we're going to talk about this morning, is this type of love. So I want you, if you have a Bible, grab it and open it to 1 John chapter 3. Our series continues in what we're calling Brilliance in the Basics. John is giving us a lot of things to, to think about and focus on. None of them are super theologically rich, deep, like over-your-head kind of things. They're very foundational, important, pivotal aspects of our faith. So let's look at 1 John chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 11 for our text this morning. Um, and this is the word of God. 1 John 3, 11 through 18. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does love's, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we consider your word, as we see it very clearly as a message of, of hope and of strength and of courage. Uh, it reveals, Lord, your character to us. It shows us who you are. It shows us your faithfulness. It shows us, God, what, a, what we just sang about, what a beautiful, powerful, wonderful, amazing name that is above all names. God, show us with such clarity this morning how you want us to see your word and respond to it. Let each of us set in our hearts and minds that we will not leave this room the same way we came in. God, your word is transformative. Even if it's one step, Lord, in the direction that you're calling us to, that's, that's a good thing. So I pray for change in this place. I pray for focus in this place, and I pray, God, for the truth to be proclaimed without error and without distraction, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a number on the screen here shortly about um, texting Q&A, so if you have a question, you can text the number that is on the screen here shortly. It's also in the digital bulletin. There it is, 858-210-9041. Love to interact with you guys in any way uh, that you have questions, uh, so please do that. Okay, so John starts out, he gives us a little bit of a reminder. He says, this recurring theme about love. Remember what you've learned from the beginning. This is what John keeps saying. He's like, nothing has changed. The word you heard from Jesus, the word you've heard all through his ministry, the word you've heard from us, nothing has changed 
about that. There's not another gospel. We're not adding to it. The only difference now is that you're being asked to apply that word in real life. That's what is happening here. We have this idea, these principles, these spiritual guidelines, and now it's like, what does that look like in real life? Because I I think sometimes I get the idea that our faith is sometimes caught up in these idealistic realms, where it exists in this place where it's like a vacuum, where it never interacts with anything. You ever get that feeling? Like, I know what the Word of God says, and it, it floats out here, but then when I'm walking out my daily life, I don't always have those guiding things shaping me. You see, when the Bible is picked up, read, and then set down without any kind of implementation, that's what this supports. It supports the idea of knowledge without action. Reading it, and then putting it down, and then moving on. The ideas of the principles of the Bible, they echo in our minds and our hearts, but sometimes they don't play out in our actions. The Word of God is meant to address each of those areas. We'll call it the Triple H effect. The head, the heart, and the hands. So we we read the Word of God. Here, intellectually, we wrestle with it. Eventually, it moves down to our hearts where we meditate on it, we sit with it, we consider it. It begins to shape us. That comes out through our hands our actions. So you see the Word of God moves through our head, our hearts, and our hands, but sometimes it falls off the rails between our head and our hands, and it doesn't actually play out in real time. And and we need to be aware of that. We need to be conscious enough of what our lives look like to when we read the Word and we see the truth and it's here and it begins to shape us, but there's no follow-through. There's no action. There's no change. We need to be alert to that as a possibility, and then address it. Right? Thank you, Lee. So that plays into our message this morning. Um, We're going to see firsthand how these actions that we're talking about can begin to shape our lives in good ways and also in some less than desirable ways. The title of the message, if you're a note taker, is What is Love? Baby, don't hurt me. I'm just kidding. It's just what is love? What is love? And then sort of if you if you want to follow my thought process, uh, I always start out with a thesis statement, like study, read, figure it out. There's a statement that kind of shapes how I go through the message. And so the thesis statement that's going to help us this morning is that godly love demands action. It comes at a cost and it will set you apart from the world. Godly love demands action. It comes at a cost, and it will set you apart from the world. That's what's going to shape our message today. So I'm going to ask three questions and hopefully answer those questions as we move through the text. The first one is, why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? So if we continue in the text, we know that John starts out by saying, you've heard it said from the beginning that you ought to love one another. Good reminder, John. We've got it. We're going to hit on that a little bit further down. But then he kind of pivots, it feels like, in the text in a weird direction. And he starts talking about Cain and Abel. Let's pull up verse 12. Let's look at that one. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So maybe it seems a little bit random. Like, John, where are you going with this? It's like, you just told us to love, the, um, love one another, and there's more text to come. But I, I think in order to help us get a, a better picture of what John is talking about, let's just go to this actual text in the Bible that he's talking about. So where is the Cain and Abel story? It's in Genesis. Anybody know where in Genesis? Chapter 4. Go ahead, pull it up. Genesis 4, chapter 2. So we are four chapters into the Bible. Just, just four chapters into the story when we come across this particular scene. So I'm going to read. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Where is your Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Well, that's an intense story. Right out the gate, practically, we see, of course, in the previous chapter of Genesis, the fall of man into sin, and this is the result. But right off the bat, if we think about the text that we're looking at in John, he gives us a negative example, what not to be like. Don't be like Cain, is what he's telling us. So why, then, here's where our interaction comes in, why did Cain kill his brother Abel? Give me some answers. Jealousy, Jealousy anger. anger, upset with God, okay. Those first two, and, and Mary, that's a good one too, I, I think all of those put together are accurate. He was jealous, he was angry, but if we look at the text that we just read, the reason, ultimately, why he was what, upset was because Abel was righteous before God and accepted, and Cain was not. That's what set him off. You're like, wait a minute, is that really what happened? It's a simple fact that his brother loved the Lord and did what was right in God's eyes that caused Cain to take matters into his own hands. And we see a pattern emerging in the very opening stages of the Bible. So those two words, we'll take those. We, we see um, jealousy. He was jealous. Leading to anger. Leading to murder. Jealousy. Moving into anger. Moving into murder. That's a pattern that the Bible establishes. Where do we see this pattern in the opening books of the New Testament? With Jesus and who? The, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. At first, they're jealous. Like, who is this guy? Right? And then what do they do? They get angry. <laughs> and then what do they do? They kill him. 
There's a pattern that is being established. So what we have here is Cain is actually a prototype for the world who rejects God, defines right and wrong for himself, and takes a stand against anything having to do with God. And because he's a prototype for the world, these tendencies and characteristics still corrupt mankind today. We still see this all around us, which is the answer to our first question, why do they hate us? Which naturally leads into John's follow-on point, don't be surprised that the world hates you. He's like, this is how it's been for nearly all of the history of humanity. There's a huge divide between people who claim and cling to the truth of God, who are willing to see and acknowledge their own sin and their own rebellion against God, and then those who make their own standards and reject God. Huge divide there. And, and John has already given us some clues as to why this is in this very um, section that we've been looking at. But let's go back to John, John's gospel, in chapter 3, and, and see a little bit more about this. John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Now is the kicker. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. People reject God every day, but they, they also reject you as someone who adheres to God's standards because the light reflecting off of you begins to reveal the sinfulness in their life. That's what he says. Why don't they come into the light? Lest their own sinfulness should be exposed. This is actually, it causes unbelievers to avoid people like you and me who are called to be the light in the darkness, not because they hate us directly, but because they, they hate what they begin to see in their own lives as the light that you're reflecting comes upon them. Have you experienced this? I, I know I have on both sides, because when I was not a believer... I had my own ways of, of doing that. I would, I would go out of my way to, to poke fun at and make fun of these people, these Christians, so that they wouldn't come near me, so that I wouldn't see in my own life what was being exposed. Because their light was shining into me, and I was like, get away from me. Like, I don't want to see that. I don't need that. And so I would just I would keep them at distance by just making their life really difficult. And it wasn't too hard as a platoon sergeant in the Marine Corps. I could just say something really cruel and hurtful, and then they would just stay away from me. Easy. How awful is that? And pathetic, right, for me to have to do that. But I had a choice in the matter, didn't I? Didn't, didn't Cain have a choice in the matter? He, he, he had a conversation with God. <laughs> and we talked about this in our life group on Friday. He's like, Cain had the opportunity to change. But he chose not to. He was not doing things that were pleasing to God. And instead of seeking to correct himself, he got rid of the thing that exposed his evil nature, his own brother. So don't be surprised that the world hates you, John tells us. But also, we should be keenly aware that if not a single person around us re responds to us like that, if we get along with everybody perfectly all the time, 
we may want to evaluate the way in which we're reflecting the light to the world around us. Because if I'm reading these texts properly, it's basically telling me that as I'm reflecting light into the world, people will not like it. Just by the way that I live my life, by the way that you live your life, different from the world, it's going to offend people and they're going to put you at a, at a distance and it even says they're going to hate you. That doesn't mean everybody's going to hate you all the time. Like That's not the point here. But again, an opportunity for evaluation. If nobody is responding to you this way, how bright is your light shining on a regular basis? Does that make sense? Okay, I can see I'm hitting some sensitive topics, so I'll move on. <laughs> Let's go with a different topic now. How can we be confident of our hope? Here's a second question. How can we be confident of the hope that we have in Jesus? In other words, if we do not belong to this world, like we talked about in chapter 2, we're not a part of this world, we've been redeemed by Jesus, what evidence should there be in our lives? Well, that's a good question. Let's look at verse 14. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We pass from death to life. We know that. Why? Because we love the brothers. Now, this, this is not a works-based thing, right? It's never been about that. It's not like, because I love my brothers, I'm saved, right? No, it's evidence that our lives have been transformed by Jesus. And part of that transformation is expressed in the love that we have for people. John Stott says that love is the surest test of having life. And we've already learned part of that in chapter 2 of this book. Let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So abiding in the light is John's way of saying that that person is a believer, one who has repented and believed in Jesus. They're abiding in the light. And if they do that, then they love their brother. That's another way of saying that the evidence of that is the love that we have for each other. Driving the point home. I think you get it. Now, to be fair, this is uh, uh, just not a love for us in this room. Although he used the terms brothers, that's, that's not only what he's talking about. We can't fool ourselves into thinking that. It is... Um, it's a love for all people. Aren't we called to love all people? Are, even the hard ones? Yes. Even the ones who make your life difficult? Yes. Then you'd rather just be not involved with them at all? I think one of the greatest threats to our maturity as believers and our gospel witness to the world around us is a lack of genuine love. Real, genuine love. Now, I think also it's easier to be excited about humanity as a whole and loving everybody than it is to love a specific person. The idea of loving the world is easy for us to go, yeah, sure, yeah, I love the world, woohoo, I'm all about it. Even the ones that are difficult, yeah, no problem. But as theologian and professor Lewis once said, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. 
That's something we also need to be careful. I, I know plenty of times where I've been like, yeah, I love everybody. And then when it comes to like actually living that out in real time with a one-on-one relationship, you're like, oh, maybe not everybody. Maybe not that person or that person or that person, that person, that person. I'm being very choosy about who I'm loving. That's not the kind of love that we're called to, right? It's all people, always. That's what it is about. So we are directed to love all people. And this love for all people, my friends, is good evidence that we are abiding in the light, that we have repented and believed, that we are actually counted among the followers of Jesus. The problem is there are a lot of different definitions and expressions and opinions of what love is, right? So maybe you're asking yourself, what is the love that we're actually describing here? What love is that love? And that's the last question that we're going to hopefully seek to answer. What does this love really look like? Well, so let's look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So in a nutshell, love is expressed in proper action. Love is expressed in proper action. So whenever I sit down to do some premarital counseling, one of the, when I get to the part about love languages and how men and women, husbands and wives, exchange love, I try to go out of my way to overemphasize the significance and importance of doing, of action, when it comes to expressing love. How many of you guys know your love language? Know your significant other's love language? Or you kind of have some of that in there. Okay. Regardless of whether you know your love language or not, let me just tell you this. It is never enough just to say I love you. Never. It must be accompanied with action. Otherwise, it's just words. I can say anything to you very convincingly, with a straight face and all, and mean none of it. Unless you see my hands go to work in that. So my wife knows that I'm an acts of service kind of person. I like it when people do things for me. I mean, that sounds weird, but that's kind of how it, that's what it boils down to. So she knows that about me. And from time to time, she'll go out her way to express that, specifically in the area of doing the dishes. Not something that she particularly enjoys doing. And happens to be my job in the house. She cooks, I clean. Right? It works. But she knows that I receive love that way, and so she'll be like, okay, I'm going to do it. I don't have to do it, but I'm going to do it. And I see in that a love expressed in a tangible way. It may sound weird or silly, but that's, that's the reality of how we're created as human beings. So early on in our marriage, I would come home from a long day at work, and I would see that she had a hard day with the kids. And what do I do? I look at the dishes and go, man, I should do the dishes because I love her. <laughs> and so I come right in the door and I start doing the dishes. Uniform's still on and everything. Did she appreciate that? No. Nope. <laughs> you know why? Because that's not her love language at all. She saw the dishes as more important than her. Why are you doing the dishes? You love doing the dishes more than you love me? And I'm like, I'm trying to love you. Which is another great point here, that love does not just require action, but it requires 
Context. Appropriate action. Context. Right? You get the point. Let me read you something that I think is going to bridge this gap for us. In my studies this week, I actually came across this twice from two different sources. So I thought, okay, God, you really want me to use this. And hopefully what I just explained to you will help set this up. The idea of love expressed in appropriate action, the proper context. Like, I'm trying to show you that I love you by doing the dishes and get out of here with that. So this is actually um, from a man named James Denny. He says this, If I were sitting on the end of the pier on a summer day, enjoying the sunshine and the air, and someone came along and jumped into the water and drowned to prove his love for me, I should find it quite unintelligible. I might be much in need of love, but an action in no rational relation to any of my necessities could not prove it. But if I had fallen over the pier and were drowning, and someone sprang into the water, and at the cost of making my peril, or what or for him might be my fate, his own, saved me from death, then I should say, greater love hath no man than this. I should say it intelligibly, because there would be an intelligent relation between the sacrifice which love had made and the necessity from which it redeemed. The, the New Testament is very clear that the love that Christ has for us is best expressed where? On the cross. Because it satisfied the greatest need for humanity. Love in context matters. At its core, the love Jesus is after is sacrificial. It matters that it costs something. Mr. Dodd says, Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life to enrich the life of another. Remember the thesis statement I told you? Love, it comes at a cost. The kind of love that we're talking about requires action. It comes at a cost. Now, does, does that mean it excludes those sort of gushy, romantic-y commitment kind of feelings? No. It absolutely includes all that, but it doesn't stop there especially the kind of love that we're talking about in terms of godly love and Christian love. This love requires that we, as followers of Jesus, are regularly looking for opportunities around us to meet the needs of others, often at a cost to ourselves. Now, does that mean we're called to, to literally lay down our lives for others? I mean, maybe, but generally speaking, that's probably not going to be a lot of us in this room, although the willingness to do that is certainly there. But he's not talking about every one of us is going to have to die for other people. That's, that's the extreme that we're talking about here. Isn't that, though, what John himself goes on to say? If you've got something that someone else needs and you see it and you don't do anything about it, how does the love of God exist in you? I mean, that's, that's about as clear as you can get. John's like, you see a need. You have in your pocket, in your bank account, in your garage, in your words. You've got what it takes to, to meet that need, and you don't do it. He questions, how in the world does the love of God exist in you? That's like, it just hits you right between the eyes, knock you over. He says, don't love in word 
or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Love requires proper action. Maybe the story that's coming to your mind is the Good Samaritan. You guys familiar with that one? Well, let's just read it in review. Luke chapter 10. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring an oil, wine. Then he set on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. That's exactly what we just talked about, isn't it? Like two people who are supposed to be like their lives shaped, a priest and a Levite, like the people who care for people... Like, oh, that guy? Mm. No, we're going around. They had an opportunity to meet that need, and they chose not to. But this guy, he, he goes out of his way. That's just not like, here, let me help you up. Okay, let me send you on your way. Bandaged him up, took care of him, put him on his own animal, walked him into town, paid the innkeeper out of his own pocket to make sure that he was cared for. And oh, by the way, if there's anything else that you need, let's, just let me know. I'll pay for it. I'll take care of it. So two things that stand out here that are necessary for this kind of love. Perception and proximity. You know, a person should be alert and aware to the needs of the people around them. You've got to have your eyes open to see that there are actually things going on around you that you can be the hands and feet of Jesus for. You have the ability, you have the giftings, you have all that you need to be able to do that. Sometimes it's more obvious than others. Sometimes it's a physical need. Sometimes you just need to be alert to see that person is hurting. And I can't offer them any money or food or anything, but I can offer them the hope of Jesus Christ. I can pray for them. I can just express some kind of love verbally for them. It doesn't have to be this massive undertaking. But a person also needs to be close up enough to those in need to actually lend a hand. Perception and proximity. You've got to have your eyes open to be able to see, but then you've got to be close enough to do something about it. The priest and the Levite, they purposely went around. How many times have we, walking in a, in a situation or see a, a difficult person, and we take the long way because we don't want to interact with that person? Oh, that person's hard to deal with, or that person looks a little scary, or, or whatever. You know, We have to be in proximity. Now, I know many people, when it comes to this topic, they're like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> like, how do I even decide? I mean, look around you, there's, there's needs everywhere. And so it's always going to take discernment and prayer to figure out, like, all right, Lord, who is it today that you would have me to help? We can't help everybody. We're not called to do that. But we're also not called not to help anybody at all, either. Right? right? It doesn't have to be extremes. <laughs> we meet somewhere in the middle. And it's, it's just going to be something that we need to, to begin to exercise. And the more that you do this, the more you'll be able to be sensitive and hear the moving of the Holy Spirit. Like that person. She's the one. Pray with that person. Go over there. 
But if we don't ever start exercising those muscles, we're not going to grow in our ability to do what he's called us to do. But the bigger picture I'd like for us to see here is that loving people in this way is not an option. It's not if we think about it or if we have time or if there's an actual need around us. It's not an if. It's not optional. The life of a follower of Jesus Christ is marked by this kind of love. This is what we're called to, my friends. Others-focused, sacrificial, selfless love. Remembering that godly love demands action, comes at a cost, and will set you apart from the world. So ask yourselves, how is God calling me to grow in this area of a lifestyle of love? So I want to close by reading to you an excerpt from that link, that article that Kyle was talking about. As a real-world example of what this love looks like. So this is that same article, and it's actually a link to it in the Digital Bulletin if you want to read the whole thing. So this is from that pastor who's pastoring a church in the Ukraine. This is what he said. We believe the church is a place of spiritual struggle. As tensions have risen, our church announced a week of fasting and prayer, gathering every night to bring our request to God. For three days in a row, the lights were turned off in the city. We were forced to meet in the dark, adding a solemn atmosphere to our prayers for peace. At the end of the week, those moments produced in us an inner strength to persevere. Through communal prayers, we've gained confidence and peace. We believe God is with us, and that is the most important thing. During this critical moment, our church, which has about a thousand people attending on a normal Sunday, is also a place of service. We've recently conducted several trainings on the performing first aid. People are learning how to apply a tourniquet, stop bleeding, apply bandages, and manage airways. These lay people are not going to become doctors, but this has given them confidence to care for their neighbors if necessary. In fact, when I first announced the first aid training, one brother told me, now I know why I need to stay in Ukraine. He had planned to leave. He knew he was not a soldier. He wasn't able to take up arms and fight, but now he wants to stay to help the wounded and to save lives. If necessary, the church premises can be turned into a shelter. We have a good basement. We're ready to deploy a heating station as well as provide a place for a military hospital. To make this a reality, we're creating response teams. If martial law is declared, they're ready with a strategic supply of fuel, food, and material for dressing wounds. We've even gathered information on who in the church are doctors, mechanics, plumbers, even who has wells in case of water shortages. We have decided to stay, both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. That's love in action. In context is what we're called to. So how are we going to grow in that today? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the fact that you you loved us before we loved you. You loved us so much that you sent your only son for us to hang on a cross, having lived a perfect life, free from sin, whose blood was shed for our sins. We deserve the punishment, but you took it in our place. You made a way for us to be reconciled out of our rebellion and sin back to a loving Father through Christ. And now, Lord, you call us to continue in that love. 
God, would you help us today to move in the direction of this kind of life? And as I said at the beginning, Lord, sometimes it's just a baby step. And it feels insignificant, but when you begin to take one step after another, Lord, we know that you guide our steps, you lead us, you light our path. But we got to start. we got to move. Thank you for the love that you have for us, and thank you that you've equipped us to love others. It's not out of our own ability. It's not out of our own strength. God, it's through you that we love in this way and through you alone. Help us to grow in this kind of love. We thank you so much. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.